The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Coming up on American POTUS, the original 15. From Washington to Buchanan, the first group of guys to head up our new nation were not just dealing with an exciting new job, they were also figuring out what that new job should or shouldn't be. Well, as the growing pains of our fragile country develop deep divisions, both domestically and internationally, each man's hand was forced. They were required to do something, anything, to try and achieve peace and progress. It's the revealing true tales of our first 15 presidents, their successes and their failures on this episode of American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. By sharing their challenges, their stories, and their personalities, we hope to add some clarity and perspective for today's heated political conversations. We've had a lot of presidential history fanatics on this show, but this guy might just top the list. We're thrilled to welcome presidential historian David Fisher. While his professional life has included several executive leadership positions within our D.C. government, his true passion has always been the history of the presidency, going so far as to line the walls of his entire D.C. area home with over 1,100 first edition presidential biographies. I think I can safely say both Alan and I are very jealous. Well, he's put together a series of terrific books called The Presidential Chronicles. They contain a robust yet concise biography of every U.S. president. Pick your POTUS and David can tell you everything you want to know. We'll link to this fantastic series on our AmericanPOTUS.org website. David. First off, I have to ask, it says in your bio that your dog is named Chester. So is the gentleman boss your favorite POTUS? <laughs> uh, it is a good question. He's not my favorite, but I love him for one thing. And this is one of the things I love about the presidency is it can change you in sort of a really neat way. And so Chester Arthur, I think, as we know, didn't want to be president. He was terrified about being president. He was not a very good president. But he spent his whole life, his whole career as a spoilsman, part of machine politics. And that's how he got to be vice president. But when he became president and it came, push came to shove, he repudiated his own background. I mean, he turned on Roscoe Conkling, the senator that had been his boss all those years. And he turned away from him and he embraced civil service reform, the Pendleton Act. And it's actually one of these moments of bravery in sort of presidential history that I've always just sort of glommed onto. So here's a guy who didn't want to be president. He wasn't good at it, but he had his moment where he really was under the gun and he did the right thing, sort of that North Star. And for that, we've named our dog Chester. And he was one heck of a dresser too. (laughs) He was, he was a dapper man and everybody loved him. He just You know, he just had no business being president and didn't want that job. But he rose to the occasion in that in that one moment. And and I give him a lot of credit for that. And it's one of the things about the presidency that I find so fascinating is when you get in that seat, 
and the whole country is looking to you, sometimes that inspires people and sometimes it terrifies them and we get different reactions. And at least that moment, Chester Arthur really did the right thing. And so I've always sort of loved that about him. You obviously have a passion for this like we do for the presidency. What, what led to that interest, that passion? Yeah, you know, as, as Scott was talking about, I started collecting these biographies and I started reading them, especially a lot of the 19th century biographies where you really can sort of get uh, people who knew those 19th century presidents and tell real stories about their lives. And frankly, I just find them fascinating. I, I you know, one of our, our friends at the, at the Benjamin Harrison uh, site in Indianapolis likes to say, you know, there's uh, a half a billion people have been Americans, but only 45 have been president of the United States. It's this rare, rare job. And we get all different kinds who have elevated into that role. But I just find their lives are fascinating. They're pre-presidency, presidency, post-presidency. And, and basically what happened was I, uh, I sort of started finding myself telling presidential stories at dinner all the time <laughs> to the point where my kids and others said enough already. But there was always sort of something in the news that I could link back to something that happened, you know, to Andrew Jackson or to John Adams or whatever. And I just thought, you know what? I've gotten to know enough of these people. Maybe I should start writing about them. And so that's what I did. I just started writing. And, you know, my goodness, now it's uh, there's, there's a lot of biographies done, but a lot more still to go. Yeah, I love it. And we certainly share that that fascination, that passion. In the three volumes we're talking about today, you cover presidents from George Washington up to Buchanan. We obviously can't can't talk about all those, but I'm going to focus on a few that perhaps aren't as well known. But first, I have to start with George Washington. I think that's required by law. <laughs> and, and one question about Washington's always intrigued me, and that, why do you think this man who was an established member of the, essentially the Virginia aristocracy, why did he end up leading a revolution against his mother country? Yeah, you know, I think people um, sometimes don't realize that Washington really was very much the rebel from shortly after the Stamp Act was was passed, you know, in the in the 1760s. And I think there were really three things that really got to Washington. He was a very proud man, and he sort of took personal insults very, very seriously. And there were sort of, I think, three things that got him to say, you know, enough's enough with the British. And the first was, you know, he wanted to be a British officer in their military. And he fought alongside them. He was part of the Virginia militia, but he could not get that commission for a officer position, general officer position that he really wanted. And he really resented it. He thought he had earned it on the battlefield. He had shown that he was competent, but because he was a colonial, they wouldn't give him that chance. And he really resented that. I think that was number one, never went away. The second was economics. As you said, he was a leading member of the, the planter plantation society in Virginia very astute businessman, but he realized that the economic cycle was all to the favor of the British and not to the colonials. And specifically these agents that sort of ran the, the, the all the funding for the plantation owners in, in the American South, where you bought all your supplies from them, and then they sold your, uh, your agricultural products overseas. The problem was, if you had a bad year, like the weather came in and knocked out your crops or something, they expected to be paid. And that's why a lot of these plantation owners were constantly going into deep debt. It was sort of a rigged system that favored the British. And again, Washington resented this. He felt this wasn't, this wasn't fair. This wasn't right. And then the third piece was the whole taxation without representation, the Stamp Act and the subsequent acts that came after that in the late 1760s. He just thought was wrong. It's, look, you know, I'm, I, we should have 
you know, allegiance to the crown, but in terms of passing laws and things like taxes, we are a separate entity here in the colonies. You need to let us alone. And, and parliament and the king have no right to do this. And I think those three things, you stack them all up together for a really proud man with some momentum moving toward independence and rebellion. He was he was willing to sign on and, of course, lead. He wasn't just going to be a party to it. He wanted to lead in anything that he did. And, of course, uh, he did. And, and fortunately for the United States, he did just that. Yeah, I think all, all absolutely right. And, you know, on your first point about his desire to be an officer, I've always found it interesting. His service in what we call the French and Indian, Indian War was, I think, eye-opening for him. He saw at the very beginning of that the British make a lot of missteps. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the belief that they were in some way invincible overall, uh, I think, pretty quickly went away with him. And he saw that they weren't always the smartest on the battlefield, for sure. Yeah. And it was also, of course, a learning period for him as well in, in battle that, of course, helped him in the Revolutionary War. But I mean, I think you're right. He saw, look, I could do that job and I've earned it. I put my life on the line, uh, you know, in a colonial militia uniform. But for the British cause, you guys should repay me by giving me that chance. And they just never did. And I don't think George Washington ever got over that. Let's turn to another founder, James Monroe. What do you mm -hmm. think his most important accomplishments were and why, why is he often relatively at least overlooked compared to the other founding fathers? Yeah, he really is overlooked. And I've struggled with this because I'm a huge Monroe fan. Uh, I mean, you look at what he did in his lifetime from being a war hero at the Battle of Trenton as a teenager. I mean, he basically was the the man on the speed dial, the per proverbial speed dial of, of Jefferson and Madison or even Washington. Whenever they needed somebody to send somewhere to do something, the Louisiana Purchase, be the ambassador to this or that. I mean, Monroe was always the guy. Um, that they would send along. And of course, his presidency was was very effective and, and successful. He had the era of good feelings. He was reelected almost unanimously. Uh, the Compromise of 1820, I mean, the acquisition of Florida. These were substantive things that James Monroe did. And yet, as you said, we don't know much about him. And, and I think partly, I've, I've tried to sort of think through this. I think it's because he was... He wasn't an ideologue. He was more of sort of a practical get it done kind of guy. Whereas you've got, you know, an Adams and a Jefferson and a Madison who, who you know, were so associated with the Declaration or the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. Or, of course, Washington, who wasn't as much an ideologue, but still the formation of the country around Washington on the battlefield and the Constitution and the presidency. I mean, those four really sort of stand out. And almost everyone else sort of tends to start to fall away. And, and Monroe's kind of on that cut line for some reason. Despite all the things that he did that were impactful, it just doesn't seem to rise to, the, to those other four. And, and for some reason, because of that, there are not a lot of people who wrote about him. And, and of course, we don't know nearly as much about him. But in terms of accomplishments, again, I, I listed several. I mean, I just think the biggest one is the one that we do know about him. And that's the Monroe Doctrine. And the Monroe Doctrine, I don't think people realize today what a big deal that was in the 19th century. If you think about the first hundred years of the country, we really only had two guiding principles in foreign affairs for a hundred years. We had George Washington's proclamation of neutrality, let's stay out of their business, no entangling alliances, that kind of thing for, for number one. And number two was the Monroe Doctrine. And what's interesting about the Monroe Doctrine is how bold it was with so little to back it up. I mean, here Monroe comes along and he's got his secretary of state, John Quincy Adams, and they're formulating this, this position 
no more colonization in North or South America by the Europeans. You know, we'll stay out of Europe. You stay out of the, the out of the Americas. And he had no navy. He had no army that was going to actually enforce this. It was really just the sort of the prestige of the United States coming online and the potential that, look, if you want to be the United States friend economically or for whatever reason, you kind of have to follow this rule because the United States is going to take this very seriously. And what's remarkable, other than a couple of deviations, you got the French coming into Mexico during the U.S. Civil War and a couple of others. But for the most part, for 100 years, Europe stays out of the Americas, giving the United States and others a chance to sort of prosper in these new republics, these new ways of having governance without interference from from the, the Europeans. So it was enormously impactful in that the Europeans sort of followed it. And it really did make a difference, I think, in the giving the United States some, some freedom and space to sort of grow and experiment with its new system of government. And yet all pretty much we know about the Monroe Doctrine is people learn it in school and they learn the name. <laughs> they right. don't typically know as much about it. You know, the 200th anniversary of the Monroe Doctrine is just a year away. It was December of, of 1823. So it's coming up a year from next month. I'm actually hoping somebody does some kind of a celebration or at least a retrospective on what was very substantive and bold at the time, given that, again, we didn't have a military to back it up, but he went and did it anyway, and it worked. So so if James Monroe is often overlooked, Martin Van Buren is almost completely overlooked. Uh, y- your overview of his life ends with some really interesting speculations on the meaning of his successes and his failures in the political realm. Can, can you tell us what questions you thought his life and career raised? Yeah. You know, when I think originally about uh, uh, Martin Van Buren, it's as the, as the, uh, as the politician, I mean, which is what he was throughout his career. I mean, he was one of the first career politicians, not only at the local and state level, but at the national level where, where sort of the job of a politician was to win elections much more than sort of to be for something. Again, not an ideologue. He spent, you know, all his years in the United States Senate, state government, vice president, even president of the United States. He was a Jeffersonian, I think, you know, in general from an ideological standpoint, but he was not a policy guy. He was one of these politicians who knew how to get elected. He was called the great magician because he had this sort of scheming behind the scenes where, you know, it didn't look like he'd prevail. And all of a sudden he'd make some kind of a deal. And all of a sudden, you know, he's reelected or his friends are reelected. And so he used that political mindset to become a true expert in the craft all the way through state government, through national government to be president of the United States as a major success. But then you look at his post-presidency and he actually changes stripes where he takes two very strong stands. The first one was in 1844. After he lost the uh, re-election to uh, William Henry Harrison in 1840, he becomes the odds-on favorite to return in 44. He's going to get the Democratic nomination. The Whigs are in disarray. Basically, all he has to do is stay quiet, and he's probably going to be president for a second time. And if he had followed his own sort of political advice, like when he was advising Andrew Jackson, when Jackson was running for his second term, and people were all you know saying terrible things about him, and he said, you know, look, you just stay quiet. Don't say anything. I know you want to respond, but the right political move here is to stay quiet and you're going to win. If he had followed his own advice, he would have been president, I think, again in 44. But he didn't. He took a bold 
stand and wrote something called the Hammett Letter. And this was all about Texas, whether or not the United States was going to try to acquire or annex Texas in the earlier middle 1840s. It was the major topic of the day, sort of manifest destiny was on the rise. Andrew Jackson was very much driving the Democrats to support Texas. But this was the one area where Van Buren disagreed with Jackson. It was the only area, really, that he disagreed. And he was not in favor of, of annexing uh, Texas for a variety of reasons. And he did not stay silent about it. He wrote this 10,000-word letter that immediately went public on all the reasons why he thought this was a bad idea. It was probably the most principled document he had ever written his whole life. And yet, while we, I want to sort of praise that and be happy for it, what's the lesson? Because then he loses. He loses the Democratic nomination. Jackson withdraws his support. The party goes in another direction. And basically, that letter cost him the presidency. And then he does it again. Four years later, we've now won the Mexican War. The Mexican session is staring us in the face in terms of slavery expansion. And almost out of the blue, because he had never really talked much about slavery before, but Van Buren writes a, a, a treatise, he called it the Barnburner Manifesto. And it was to say, basically, the North will not tolerate any more expansion of slavery. And this bold statement turned into uh, the Free Soil Party actually nominating him for the presidency. And of course, he didn't win any states. And so once again, he he does sort of the North Star bold thing, but he completely fails politically. And so I look at these two sides of, of Van Buren's career, and I'm wondering, which is the one that we're actually supposed to admire? Is it the career politician who doesn't really stand for anything, but wins elections and gets all the way to the presidency of the United States? Or is the really principled guy who puts out these two uh, lengthy letters and memos, but doesn't win anything again the rest of his life? Which is the one we're supposed to admire? That's the question that I raise. And I think that's, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. I think people have to answer that for themselves. Well, ideally, of course, you combine the two. And I think sometimes we've seen that. But uh, you're right. Very, very fascinating character that is too often overlooked. Uh, William Henry Harrison is one of those two. I know we've talked on American POTUS before about his kind of pre-presidential years. Of course, he's known by most people today for the unfortunate fact that he was president for about what, 30 days or so before he died. And he was sick. He was sick most of that time, all that time. What did you learn about Harrison's life as part of his real legacy, not just the legacy of being the shortest um, served president in, in our history? Yeah, Alan, it's interesting because of all the presidents that I've written about, this is the question I get asked a lot is, how did you write like a full biography of William Henry Harrison when he was only president for a month? And I said, that's because you don't know William Henry Harrison. His life was fascinating. And if you want to learn what I learned about the United States, you know, my 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 sort of pitch on my series is it's a view on American history as seen through the lives of the president. And so we learn not just from their presidencies, but their pre and post presidencies about American history. And for Harrison, I learned a ton about what it was like to live on the frontier in the early 19th century. This was a dangerous time with Indians abounding, you know, being part of the militia, what that really meant. I mean, life and death as part of the militia. And, you know, as Harrison 
becomes the governor of the Indiana Territory, a leading role, again, on the frontier. And you get to learn about characters like Tecumseh and the prophet, these great Indian warriors. One of the great leaders, really, who lived in North America is Tecumseh, not just for his physical prowess, but the leadership where he basically went toe-to-toe with Harrison and said, no more, white man, we don't want you here. No more taking our land away from us. This is our land. And of course, the Americans are continuing to both strike deals and also poach land. And that conflict and that tension of how it evolved and got to a very personal level between like a, like a Harrison and Tecumseh. Of course, that gets into the War of 1812. You get the siege at Fort Miggs, the Battle of the Thames, where eventually Tecumseh dies and Henry Harrison and and the Americans are successful, not just against the British, uh, but also against the Indians. That era is an era I don't think we study very much. And this was the one lens through a president who lived on the frontier at a time where the Indian relations in particular were still very tense, very emotional, and how they sort of worked through that um, I, I, again, found fascinating, which really comes to a head, of course, like I said, in, in, in the War of 1812 when they actually do, do real battle. But that, to me, is probably the most interesting part uh, of Harrison's life. He, of course, has a political career where he does a variety of things as well. Uh, but that's where I thought the most interesting part of his life is from an American history standpoint. Of course, and also a grandson who becomes president. He is. And of course, that grandson, Benjamin, uh, was born in his house, um, you know, which doesn't exist anymore there in North Bend, Ohio. Um, But uh, again, the Harrison family, if you go from Benjamin to John Scott, or rather from William Henry Harrison to John Scott Harrison to Benjamin Harrison, but even before that, you had a Benjamin Harrison who signed the Declaration of Independence. So you look at these multiple generations of Harrisons, you can actually trace a lot of the political history of the first hundred years of the United States. States through those multiple generations. Very interesting. Now, now Scott will tell you, I'm a James K. Polk fanatic. Okay. Uh, <laughs> his mentor, Andrew Jackson, is seen as a very consequential president, but you could argue that Polk had many more successes while in office. So why do you think Polk's legacy is nearly forgotten today? And Jackson is still a topic of a lot of discussion, both pro and con. Yeah. And of course, Jackson, that is the thing with Jackson. He was a controversial guy, right? And he was, you know, he'd be the guy that you'd be talking about on uh, cable news every night if he lived today. Whatever he said that day would be news because that's sort of the personality uh, was so over the top. And he took very bold stands. He got some things done. He, he did some really good things. He did some not so good things, but he was sort of always newsworthy, if you will, to use sort of a modern term in terms of uh, Andrew Jackson. James Polk was almost the opposite. He never sought the limelight. He was one of the hardest workers around. In fact, he basically worked himself to death in in his four years in in office, died 100 days later because he was so exhausted. I mean, he was a a micromanager. He was sort of in the weeds, behind the scenes, and not necessarily the kind of person that you would would, uh, see lots of things written about. Nevertheless, he had probably the most impactful one-term presidency in American history. And I think based on your introduction, you would probably agree with that. I mean, he, he basically had an agenda of four things. He took a one-term pledge. 
I'm only going to stay for four years. And he did all four of those things, and they were big deals. I mean, this was the tariff that he brought down that had been such a controversial issue for so long. He established the sub-treasury, which basically ended the arguments about the Bank of the United States. We'd had those arguments since the Washington administration. He, he ends the 25-year dispute in the Northwest Territory with Britain to, to draw that line eventually at the 49th peril, parallel. And so he, he established that, that part of the United States, uh, which had been sort of uh, in limbo for a long time. And then, of course, the war with Mexico and, and the Mexican cession, which creates huge both opportunities and challenges for the United States. I mean, these were his four main things. He did them all. And there's two things I would say about Polk. One is, again, he was not a man in the limelight. He didn't have a lot of followers. He didn't have a lot of people to sort of take up the mantle, whereas like a Jackson did, Polk being one of his followers, Van Buren, many others considered themselves Jacksonians, sort of aligned with Jackson. Polk didn't have many uh, people who were sort of his his inner circle that were going to take things forward and, and, and sort of in his name. Uh, he had a very small circle, and, and they were not uh, necessarily sort of considering themselves as, as Polk people. And so I don't think he had a lot of folks to, to carry forward. He wasn't in the news or as newsworthy much. So some of these same things that we see today about, well, who gets paid attention to? It's people who are in the news. But the other thing about Polk, and, and again, maybe this is a discussion that we could have uh, at some point as well is I mean, you, have, you have to, I think there's been also a look at Polk and how we got into the Mexican war. And I mean, if, even if you look at what two other presidents said about this, both Lincoln and Ulysses Grant, who were very against the way we got into that war, it were sort of Polk kind of baited the Mexicans to, to cross the Rio Grande and, and get into that. It was pretty disingenuous the way he sort of started that whole thing. I think that caused some reputational tarnish with not the result, which people were thrilled with the result um, and the whole manifest destiny and moving across North America based on what he was able to accomplish. But the way he did it, I think there has been some examination of that that is not as favorable. And that could have had something to do with, um, with the fact that a lot of people haven't sort of jumped on his bandwagon. But I think it was also, frankly, a lot of those personal characteristics where that just sort of self-promotion was never part of his thing or getting a bunch of followers was never really part of his thing. And sometimes from a historical standpoint, I mean, if you look at I looked at it the other day. I think in my collection, I must have 20 uh, uh, Andrew Jackson biographies written before the turn of the 19th century to the 20th century. James Polk has two. Um, and it just weren't a lot of people who were interested in telling his story. Still a very interesting man. Maybe that will be my retirement project. Uh, the next next James K. Polk biography. I think you're right. His personality was, shall we say, unique and very withdrawn. And he worked nonstop. Uh, so, yeah, very different personality from his mentor. I think that goes a long way to explaining it. And, of course, you, you mentioned the Mexican War. One of the heroes of that war was Zachary Taylor, who became president, but but died pretty early in his presidency. A lot of people have speculated, you know, what if he'd lived? Would he have uh, averted, help avert the Civil War, come to some, some uh, solution to that? Or maybe he would have brought the Civil War on earlier. Uh, where, where do you stand on that debate? 
Yeah, you know, in 1850, it was a really, really interesting time. He gets elected in 48, becomes president in 49. He dies in 50. But that was just after the Mexican War. The country's still trying to figure out, of course, all about slavery expansion, both into the old Louisiana Territory and now with uh, all this new territory coming in from Mexico. This was a very tense time. Now, in terms of your question, first, I don't think there was anything he could have done to avert the Civil War. By 1850, the country was so divided on this topic of slavery expansion that I don't think anything anybody could have done was going to avert a, a, a civil war. We had sort of gotten the, the lines were drawn at that point between North and South. And so I don't think there was anything he could have done to avert it. What what would have happened, perhaps, if he had lived, again, of course, is speculation, but it was pretty clear that he was not going to sign the Compromise of 1850, which was, of course, a series of, of bills that eventually Henry Clay and the, and the Congress put together and Millard Fillmore signed uh, just 10 weeks or so after uh, Taylor died when he became president. But Taylor thought this was actually asking for trouble. He thought Clay and the people in the Congress were taking on too many controversial topics, and he thought that was actually going to break the nation apart and not solve uh, the real problems. And so I think it was pretty clear he was going to veto that, which could have led to, again, earlier war. The, the thing I think likely would have happened, we might have had a battle, but I think it would have been closer to what happened in Bleeding Kansas than a full-on civil war. And the conflict would have been that territory between New Mexico and Texas. I mean, that was part of the Compromise of 1850, was to resolve that territorial dispute, which was really heating up. I don't think people realize that we were close to having a Bleeding Kansas-like fight in the north, in the New Mexico, Texas territory, because there was this disputed land, hundreds of thousands of square miles, that New Mexico wanted to become a state. They wanted to become a free state. And the Texas governor, Peter Bell, said, you're not going to make that disputed territory free on my watch. And he was ready to send in the Texas militia. Taylor was threatening to send, you know, more uh, federal troops in. Other southern governors were talking about supporting Texas in this. So there was talk about a potential conflict there of arms, you know, in, in the 1849-50 time frame. But I think we weren't quite ready for a full-scale civil war. I think if we had a conflict, which we might have, it would have been more like the skirmishes we saw you know, a few years later in Kansas. And it probably would have taken what it took, is having a Republican uh, with this new party coming on board being elected when the South would finally say, enough, we're, we don't think we have any future in this country anymore. We're going to secede and then we'll have a war. I don't think even if we had some battles in 1850, we would have gotten that far. But if, if Taylor had lived, I would have come out differently because I don't think we would have had the compromise of 1850 that we did. That would have come out differently. And we might have had um, some some gunshots fired, particularly in the Southwest. Um, don't think it would have gone to full scale war, though. I see. And another of the presidents in that build up to war was Franklin Pierce, and not a whole lot's been written about him. He's typically ranked as one of the one of the worst presidents. What, if anything, did you find were his positive accomplishments that perhaps get overlooked due to his failures and things like the Kansas-Nebraska Act? 
Yeah, unfortunately, Alan, this is going to be a really short answer because there yeah. aren't many. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. With with look with Franklin Pierce, you know, he did the Gadsden Purchase, so that was the you know that final piece of territory, you know, down in the southern southwestern part of the United States, so we could complete the transcontinental railroad. So thumbs up to him on that. The economy during his presidency, frankly, was pretty good, so maybe he gets a little credit there. But boy, other than that, I actually do list him as probably the worst president. Um, you know, some people say Buchanan. I don't think that. We could talk about that a little bit as well. There's a couple of others who probably are in the running for this. But if you look at the what sort of what Pierce did in in terms of the the Kansas Nebraska Act and the way he managed the fallout of the Kansas Nebraska Act, where he allowed this chaos basically to just fester and get worse and didn't do anything about it. It's almost like that was the spark, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which again was highly problematic given the, the clear likelihood that something like this would occur. But he was completely unprepared then to manage through um, sort of a fair and equitable um, you know, determination of well, what to do with Kansas and Nebraska now that you're going to say popular sovereignty. And he just created this complete free-for-all, which turned into you know, this mini civil war. Um, and there just really isn't much else to Pierce's presidency. It is just completely dominated by, by those activities and his failures at every step. He fires one governor, he changes another, he decides to not use the military. It just almost every step makes things worse. So it's just really hard to, to find a lot of positives, um, frankly, in the presidency of, of Franklin Pierce throughout his four years. I, I actually probably think he, he is at the very bottom. If you look at the outcomes and, and things that are generated, I'd probably put Pierce on that, right? Right. Very close, at least to the, to the top of that bottom list, if you will. Yeah. yeah. And uh, one man that, that often is ranked as worse than Pierce is James Buchanan. Sure. I, I, as you know, he was the first president to publish his memoirs. So I wondered, I have not read those. I must admit, I'd love to. I, I wonder, how did he explain his presidency in that work? And how do you view Buchanan now? Well, I'll talk about the memoir. Well, let me just talk about how we view him. Uh, he was, to me, um, here's the thing I get, because again, this is brought up all the time when it comes to Buchanan, um, is, you know, was he the worst president? To me, he was not a good president. He's probably one of our worst presidents. But I actually think Pierce, for example, was worse in terms of things uh, of what he did and, and the outcomes. But I think where I get um, a little crosswise is the folks who think that he was the worst president because either he caused the Civil War or because he failed to present, prevent the Civil War. And the fact is, there was nobody in that interregnum who is causing the Civil War or going to prevent the Civil War once a Republican, as we talked about, was elected. That was the final straw for the South. It didn't matter who was sitting in the White House for those last three months. The South was going to secede. Now, Buchanan could have done something better during the interregnum. Um, I, I think that's that's certainly arguable. But this notion that he could have really done anything to stop secession realistically or to prevent the Civil War, I just think that was unrealistic. Now, we didn't have a great presidency. Again, the, the economy was terrible. You had, again, all this stuff going on in Kansas, the Lecompton Constitution disaster. I mean, there were some really troubling things during his presidency, but I don't believe you know he was the cause of the Civil War or that, frankly, he could have done anything to prevent it. But in terms of his memoirs, um, if, if you get a chance to read them, go in thinking that his title, Mr. Buchanan's uh, Administration on the Eve of the Rebellion, that's what he called it, 
re retitle that and, and call it Don't Blame Me. <laughs> That's what his memoirs are all about. It's the entire book. And again, I have a first edition uh, in, in my collection uh, that, I, that I thumbed through. And the entire book, which he writes in the third person for some really strange reason, he writes in the third person that it's the North's fault, it's the Republicans' fault, it's Congress's fault, it's mm. the South's fault because they eventually fired on Fort Sumter. It's er the Civil War was everybody's fault except him. Mm -hmm. He blames, uh, it's all about blame, and then he exonerates two, I guess, things. One, himself, he did nothing wrong, and number two, the Constitution. The Constitution is perfect in his mind, and he was absolutely perfect in everything he did, and yet everyone else is at fault. It's probably the worst thing a president has ever written. <laughs> it's just awful. But, but to, get under, to understand James Buchanan, you have to read it because yeah. that is his mindset. He went, right. I, there's this quote I think I have in the book, the day before he died, he told a friend, and this is again, after this horrific civil war, all these terrible things that happened, he says the day before he died, basically, I can't blame myself for anything. Yeah. He just <laughs> didn't think he did anything right. wrong. And yet, of course, history does not look at it that right. way. I think when I write my autobiography, I will I will call it "Don't Blame Me" as well. I love that. I love that. I'll take that mindset. Go. Yeah, I will. So, so looking at these presidents you cover in these three volumes, did you find any attributes that they all shared, or on the other side of that, what were the most glaring differences you saw among them? Mm. So, I, I think in terms of the commonalities, there are a number of them on sort of the personal characteristics. I mean, these these folks, um, you know, that we judge based on their actions and, you know, the decisions that they made and the outcomes, which is how we should judge presidents and, and governments and things like that. But of course, they're also people. And, and with biography, you get to know them a bit. And it's one of the reasons why I love like reading these 19th century biographies, because they give you a different flavor than somebody who's 200 years removed writing about someone's uh, sort of storyline. But I mean, these guys were all patriotic. They loved their country. They believed in the greatness of the American experiment that represented democracy and the leading role of the United States in, in all of that was really important to them. They took the presidency very seriously. They all worked really hard at it. We talked about Chester Arthur. When you get to him, eh, he didn't work so hard at it. But most of these guys were more like a polk where they, they woke up every day. They had very small staffs and they worked the job really hard all the time. They took it seriously and they genuinely believed, this is one of the things I find quite interesting. They believed that they were making the best decisions they could in the interest of the entire country. Now, that doesn't mean they weren't partisan. It doesn't mean they didn't have sort of, um, you know, beliefs into their, that might be influenced by their section of the country versus the other. But almost to a man of, the, of these 15 that we're talking about, when they were in the presidential chair, they really did believe that the decisions they were making, we just talked about Buchanan even, I mean, putting himself in this category, they believed that the decisions they were making were in the best interests of the entire country. They tried to be the presidents of the whole country, which, by the way, was really hard as we got closer to the Civil War because the country itself was basically fracturing. And that's one of the reasons why you see a Fillmore and a Pierce and a Buchanan struggle, because they're trying to be the president for the whole country, and yet the country itself is, is sort of of breaking apart. But I think these are a lot of the characteristics 
Um, look, they took the Constitution seriously as well. They're all constitutionalists. And, and we'll talk about some of the differences in terms of how they interpreted the Constitution, because I think there were definitely were differences along those lines. But they read that document and they used it very much as, as their guidepost on, on how they were to uh, you know, fill out this role. Um, so they... I think they took a lot of that stuff very seriously, the job seriously, and they tried to do it, uh, you know, certainly to the best of their ability. Policy-wise, of course, they're all over the map. I think it'd be difficult to find almost a single thread on a policy issue that you could find common across all 15 of these first 15 presidents. But I'll give you one that I think is a little sobering. If there was one thing that, from a policy standpoint, that every one of these 15 presidents believed is they all believe that slavery was constitutionally protected in the fifth, in the origin in the states in which it already existed. You know, we get that converge emerging into a different view of slavery as we get toward this this batch of presidents, and then of course the Civil War and things change. We got to remember up to the Civil War, which is what we're talking about. There was not a president who did not believe that slavery in the states in which it already existed was constitutionally uh, protected. We started getting a lot of disagreement about slavery expansion and who should do things about that. And of course, that's where Abraham Lincoln gets very much involved in, 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 uh, you know, in his run for the White House. But it is one point, I think, of commonality uh, that there was this universal belief that slavery was protected in the states that it was already existed across all of these presidents. But mostly from a policy standpoint, again, I think we can talk about some of the differences because they are all over the map. And some of it goes back to sort of the, I'd almost call the founding argument, which is the Hamiltonian versus Jeffersonian view of the world. The loose construction, strict construction, you know, a small federal government, states' rights versus, you know, strong central government. We have plenty of presidents from those first 15 on either sides of, the, of this divide. Some were Hamiltonian, some were Jeffersonian, and those drove very different presidencies. It comes up time and again on topic after topic, um, I, I think is one of the sort of the common themes of differences from one administration to the next. And, and similar to that, Frankly, the role of the executive is part of that as well. You know, was the president there simply to enforce the laws or was the president there to lead the country? And there were a number of the early presidents who felt, you know what, Congress's job is to make the laws. I will go enforce those laws. There were others who were, look, you know, and Andrew Jackson, of course, is the opposite is, look, I'm the representative of the people and, and this, this country is going to do what I say. I almost don't care what the judicial and the, and the legislative branch feels. So that, that mindset around the role of the executive, the president himself, I think was pretty different across each of these folks. And, you know, maybe one other is, frankly, temperament. These guys were pretty different temperament wise. Some were, I mean, they were almost all thin skinned. I would give them that, but they, uh, you know, some were much more gregarious and outgoing. Some were much more inward like Polk that we had talked about. Some were argumentative like a John Adams or a Quincy Adams versus a Jefferson who didn't want to have an argument with anybody other than if he could write it down because he didn't like direct confrontations. Um, you had the, you know, a Washington who was this robust, manly leader versus a Madison who was a diminutive, sickly person. I mean, you, so you sort of had sort of these personal characteristics and temperaments that were quite, that were quite different. Um, but I think the, the big ones of differences were, again, the, 
what's the role of the federal government? What's the role of the executive? We really see different themes crossing through each of these administrations. Yeah. I wonder, as you wrote about these early presidents, as you as you looked specifically at, say, Van Buren or Jackson, did you say, oh, that reminds me very much of this more modern president? Or were there direct parallels that you were you were thinking about as you as you wrote these biographies? Well, the one that jumps out, yeah, of course, is Jackson and Donald Trump. I mean, that has been um, the similarities for that. Even, you know, uh, President Trump had sort of embraced that uh, that comparison, putting Jackson's portrait, uh, you know, in the Oval Office. Uh, I think if people read or read my biography of Jackson, who have lived through the, the Trump presidency, they would see a lot of commonalities in sort of style, behavior, you know, uh, very much of a fighter, doubling down when you're challenged, kind of never giving in. Um, Everything is a battle, kind of taking your own counsel, not caring as much what other people think, a kitchen cabinet versus sort of a regular cabinet, the people you actually listen to. I mean, I think there's sort of a list, you know, not just in policy things as well, sort of some of the uh, very controversial policies that each embrace. I think there is Uh, an enormous amount of similarities in their approach to sort of both life and their own, you know, place in it from their pre-presidential days, uh, but also, of course, as president of the United States. And I think a lot of their supporters would would cheer both for very many of the same reasons, and a lot of their opponents would be against both for many of the same reasons because of sort of those common traits. Um, I think those are, uh, that's probably the most apt comparison, although we were talking about uh, James Buchanan earlier, and I'll, I'll make one comparison to a modern president that I would not compare uh, Buchanan in general to this president, but a piece of him. James Buchanan was, uh, he was a lawyer, and what I would call he was more of a legalist than a leader. When he was in Congress, when he was a diplomat, he would like to parse words. He was sort of that analytical. What's the meaning of this word? Me, you know, it has such a difference in terms of, you know, getting his own way. That was how he would craft his arguments. And I can't help but thinking of, you know, Bill Clinton's, what's the meaning? It depends on what the word, meaning of the word is, is. That's exactly the kind of thing that James Buchanan would do. Now, again, I don't want to take that too far and say Clinton and Buchanan are alike or not alike or whatever. But on that particular example, Buchanan would often, and I think I have three or four examples in the book where he sort of picks apart a particular word to make his case, and that does uh, does echo into my uh, into my Bill Clinton memory banks. David, if if we ever play a presidential trivia game, <laughs> I do not want to go up against you. We'll be on the same side then. We'll do it together. There you go. Yes, no one could stop us. <laughs> That's right. The three of us together. That's a team. <laughs> wow. Whew, David, you, you cover so many great, not so great presidents. I thought we might get to know each of them a little better by choosing which POTUS would be better in certain life scenarios. Okay. Sure thing. Stranded on a desert island, would you rather be stuck with James Madison or James Buchanan? So on a desert island? Oh, that would be Buchanan. James Madison is a scrawny little guy. He's like 5'4", 120 pounds. He's not going to help me on a deserted island. I want someone, Buchanan's a big, strong, robust guy. I want survival. Um, So I think for pure survival, I'd go with Buchanan. You know, if I was stranded for a week, 
I'd pick Madison. I'd love to hang out with Madison for a week. I think over time, actually, though, Buchanan would probably be more fun. I think I might get bored with Madison after a while. <laughs> We'd get through all those arguments uh, of, of constitutionality and stuff. So I think, though, for survival instincts and perhaps more fun over time, I'd go with Buchanan. I feel like Madison would sunburn horribly. Yes, right away. He'd be burned to a crisp. (laughs) Now, who would you rather have as your neighbor? Andrew Jackson or John Adams? If Andrew Jackson was my neighbor, I would move immediately. I think there's enough <laughs> problematic parts of Jackson that, frankly, I'd be scared to live next door to him. I'd probably say something offensive by, you know, yeah. by accident. He, ch- he challenged me to a duel. I mean, who knows how that would work out? I don't think I'd want to live next to him. And frankly, Adams? Oh, I'd, <laughs> I, in fact, if I had to pick any of the first 15, I would pick Adams. I would love to sit and have over the fence yeah. an opportunity to talk to that guy every day. I mean, I, I love to debate stuff. He does, you know, intellectual discussions. I think, again, much, uh, yeah, I think I could have sure. so much fun with Adams talking about all, almost any topic for, forever. I think he would be a fun neighbor. Jackson would scare me to death. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Adams is feisty, but not yes. in a <laughs> physically punishing way. Alan? What about you? Would you rather have Andrew Jackson or John Adams? I think Andrew Jackson would be a constant entertainment in a way. I would make sure that I said nothing in any way offensive. You're right. I might step over that line. But my <laughs> God, the, this the entertainment right next door. Yeah. Uh, but but also John Adams. I mean, if you've been to Quincy and, yeah. and seen that library, I, lo- I also love books. And that would have been difficult to, to, to choose against him. And, and to be able to talk to Abigail across the fence as well, I think. That would have been pretty hard to, uh, so I probably would come down with Adams, but gosh, you know, Jackson is very tempting. All right, David, if you needed a loan, who would be the first to step up? Do you think Thomas Jefferson Hmm. or Millard Fillmore for a loan? Well, I'll be honest. I would not go to Jefferson. I would not even ask Jefferson for a loan in part because he didn't really have any money. Uh, it was all, you know, fixed in land and <laughs> slaves. That was his sort of you know, cash wealth. He lived way beyond his means. Yeah. And I wouldn't trust, frankly, a, a penny that he gave me. And I'm not a huge, we didn't talk about Jefferson earlier. I'm not a huge Jefferson fan for a variety of reasons, but I don't think I'd even ask Jefferson when it came to money. Millard Fillmore, I would go to him immediately. I mean, especially after his presidency, when he he marries uh, Carolyn McIntosh, who is like the richest person in New York. He's got tons of money. He's a huge philanthropist. I think if I had a good idea and where I needed a loan for a, something that had a good idea, I think Fillmore would fund it in a second. He was very philanthropic. And, and so I, I think this one's an easy choice for me. I think I wouldn't even knock on Jefferson's door. I would go straight up to uh, to Buffalo and, and see what Fillmore could do for me. Nice. Alan? David's right. Jefferson would write you a nice letter saying, you know, I'll think about it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Fillmore, I think, would jump right on. So absolutely Millard. And I love his first name. Yes. <laughs> Although it is fun with Millard Fillmore that his son is also named Millard Fillmore, but he did not use that name. He went by his middle name Powers. So it was this one generation that had the name that used it. Um, but but I, I do get a kick out of the fact that his son had the same name, but did not use it. Well, if I had the middle name of Powers, I would use that too. There you go. That's right. It is a lot more, uh, a lot more powerful. There you go. <laughs> All right, David, you get threatened by a burglar in a dark alleyway. Which man has your back? James Polk? Or Martin Van Buren? Uh, I think James Polk in this case. I think Van Buren would be very quick to go run for help, more so than stand and fight. 
And I think Polk was more of a stand and fight kind of guy. Yeah. You know, Van Buren might go get help really fast, which would be great uh, as he's, you know, a very, he would be maybe a good friend and, and supporter. But I think if I needed to be right then and there in the alleyway, I'd probably go with Polk on that one. He's a feisty guy and I'd like to have him at my side. Alan, what do you think? Slam dunk Polk all the way. <laughs> Tough guy. <laughs> you are yeah, a Polk absolutely. junkie. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> of course, I have to think back to the Seinfeld days when the Van Buren boys... Right. <laughs> Remember they mm-hmm. they attacked uh, who was it Kramer in the alley? Mm-hmm. Like yes. Anyway. yes. <laughs> I'm not sure that was an accurate depiction of not the followers of Martin Van Buren. I never really saw him as much of a fighter. <laughs> this is what I bring. Physical to the, fighter. This is what I bring right. to the presidential history conversation. <laughs> right. David, finally, a personal question for you: Which president would you most like to sit down and have a meal with? Of the of the presidents that we've covered. Yeah, of these 15, again, I would probably go back to John Adams. I, I think of these 15, I just find Adams fascinating. Again, he's feisty. He's he's a he's a debater. And I think we could probably have a whole bunch of really interesting conversations together. You know, pick a topic and we could go back and forth. And I think Adams is one of those guys who could probably argue both sides. I think I, I like to do that sometimes to argue both sides. We could even you know, have debates and trade off. You know, to, today we'll take A and B and tomorrow we'll flip it and do B and A. And that would be just as yeah. fun, I think, with a guy like Adam. So I, I, I would put Adam. I mean, I'd, if I had to choose who I'd like to meet, it would be George Washington. I mean, just to stand in his presence would, um, would be, you know, a, a thrill that no one could ever forget, I think. Um, but in terms of, you know, sitting down, having a meal and having a conversation with for that, I, I think I would go with, uh, with John Adams and Alan, I'm guessing it's James Polk. Right? Well, that's almost too easy for me to say. I would think <laughs> Polk number one, but then I think John Quincy Adams would be fascinating yes. you know, with his career to sit down and have dinner with. I think that'd be awesome. He would be very high on my list as well. I, again, a guy who had kind of a miserable presidency, but a phenomenal impactful life yes. that, um, I don't think we would talk too much about the presidency, but we talk about a whole bunch of other stuff. And again, another great debater and somebody who likes to have sort of intense conversations and and those kinds of things. He would be certainly uh, up there for me as well. And and actually, I would extend that to Abigail as well. I just want to go Mm. over for a family dinner with with that whole family. David, these three volumes are fascinating. It's Washington through Buchanan. They're fascinating books. What's next for you? What do you you have coming out? Are you going to continue on? When's volume four coming out? Well, actually, uh, I'm pleased to say that volume four and volume five just came out a a few weeks ago. So we've got um, War and Its Aftermath, which is volume four, which takes us from Lincoln through James Garfield. And then I've got Dawn of the 21st Century, which takes us from Chester Arthur, my friend, all the way through Theodore Roosevelt. So, and those two are actually even a little bit longer than than the first three volumes. It was hard to, you know, the more information that becomes available, it's hard to keep them, you know, as concise, but they still follow the same model. I mean, these are still roughly 150 to 200 pages each, give you a lot of content per president, but not overdo it with the folks. So, you know, if people want to go read those longer ones, like I do all the time, and and you guys certainly do, I mean, there's a different market for those biographies. Mine are intended to be for the folks who want to get a lot of good insights. You know, it's not Wikipedia here, but it's really good insights, good stories, lots of quotes and images and stuff, but don't, you know, maybe have the time to do 800 pages on, on one president. And so, I've got number 16 through 25 are out the door for volumes four and five. And frankly, right now I'm working on Woodrow Wilson. I've got Taft is done and 
Woodrow Wilson is not an easy man to cover. There is a lot of complexity with this guy. And so I think I've got a ways to go before I'm ready to start writing uh, writing his story. We can't wait to check him out. And I'll go ahead and ask, will you come back and talk about them when when they are when we have a copy? Absolutely. Anytime, guys. <laughs> right. I mean, I enjoy the I enjoy the podcast. Sometimes I'll I'll go back and, and listen to one of your interviews to uh, to frankly check to make sure I'm oh, on the right path. Nice. I was listening to one just the other day where you had uh, the gentleman who was talking about Theodore Roosevelt and uh, Jane Adams and Woodrow Wilson and that relationship. Again, fascinating to sort of, again, get my opportunity to say, am I on the right track here? Is there something that I'm missing? I look for those kinds of things. And if there's an opportunity to come back and, and chat with your audience. I would love to do that anytime. Well, we love it. And thank you so much for taking the time and, and joining us. And we look forward to having you on again. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. We admire and share David Fisher's passion for the study of the presidency. That's why we created American POTUS. Like David, we believe that to understand our history, to make sense of the world today, and to plan for tomorrow, we must understand the institution of the presidency and the actions and motivations of those who occupy it. The three volumes we discussed with David covered presidents who served in what feels like the distant past— The last president he discussed, James Buchanan, left office over 160 years ago. But as we know, their histories are still very, very relevant today. How they handled or did not handle major issues confronting the nation still resonates and can provide useful lessons and very, very vital perspective. And I agree with David that each of these men tried to serve the nation. They may have failed at times. We may vehemently disagree with their actions but they each thought they were doing the right thing for the country. It's our job, it's our duty to maintain that legacy and elect men and women dedicated to do the same. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. We'd like to thank author and historian David Fisher for joining us on this episode about our first 15 presidents. More information on all of his terrific books can be found on AmericanPOTUS.org. And we would like to thank all of you that have made a tax-deductible financial contribution to support this podcast. In addition to this show, your generosity helps us develop new groundbreaking podcast shows and revolutionary outreach programs, offering clarity and perspective to today's political conversations. If you'd like to contribute, it's easy. Simply visit AmericanPOTUS.org. We appreciate your help. American POTUS is produced by American History Studios, graphic design by Prowler Design, and original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Thomas Jefferson, quote, The most valuable of all talents is that of never using two words when one will do.